let's open our Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Um, some time ago, several months ago, I went after I finished on those occasional times that I preached and I finished our verse-by-verse study of Second Timothy, uh, I thought it would be good to go through the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, so that's why this morning we are in in chapter 3. We've been in chapters 1 and 2, and we continue in chapter 3. Three Sundays ago, I planned to take us through the first six verses of chapter 3, but unfortunately, the message was interrupted by a medical problem. I then finished that study on that Wednesday night, three days later, uh, but I realize not all of you heard heard that. But um, so let me just kind of bring us up to speed where we are when we come to verse seven. Uh, Matthew is presenting the gospel. He's presenting the message of Jesus Christ. He's focusing on the fact that Jesus is the king. And he begins the gospel in chapter 1 by giving us the genealogy. Jesus is qualified to be the king of Israel. He also explains that he is the only person of that generation who could have been the king because of his virgin conception. And we went into that. There was a a curse placed on one of the uh, descendants of David and saying no, no, a future descendant of this man could could be on the throne. But Jesus, because of the virgin birth, uh, Joseph is his adopted father, not biological. And we went into all of that uh, s- several weeks ago when I, when I was teaching on that. So chapters 1 and 2 of Matthew are presenting the birth of Christ. Then we come to chapter 3, which begins by telling the ministry of John the Baptizer. And John the Baptizer, we saw, fulfilled a prophecy in the Older Testament, in the, in the book of Malachi, chapter 4, verses 5 to 6, the last prophecy of Messiah before the close of the, uh, of the Older Testament. And that prophecy was that the Messiah would be preceded by a forerunner who would announce that the king is coming which was a common thing to do in those days when a king would be uh, arriving at some place uh, in his realm. And, and so that is very significant because of John's role and what was prophesied about him. He came on the scene in Israel by preaching a very simple but important and very profound message. His his message was summed up with the words, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's in verse 2. Later, it's interesting, when we get to chapter 4 and verse 17, we will see that Jesus began his ministry preaching the same simple message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is hand. And the very first word of Jesus' sermon is going to be repent. 
just like we saw it was the first word in John the Baptizer's uh, message. Now, repentance is very important in Scripture. And it's a sad thing that uh, churches in our day preach the gospel often with no mention of repentance. But it is at the heart of the message of the gospel. In fact, salvation apart from repentance is impossible. Now, if you wonder about that, I'm not going to turn there to read it, but jot down the reference of Acts chapter 11, verse 18. In Acts chapter 11, Peter was reporting uh, to the Christians in Jerusalem about this amazing thing that had happened with a man named Cornelius, that uh, Cornelius was a Gentile, he was a Roman centurion, and yet God had saved him. And uh, he had received the same Holy Spirit that they had received. But in Acts chapter 11, verse 18, when Peter is telling this, it's interesting uh, the words that he used uh, in in, in, uh, telling them. And then the believers, after hearing what he said, they said in Acts 11, 18, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance. So that's interesting that they put a priority on repentance. But then when you look at the next phrase, that God has granted repentance that leads to life, that shows the impact of the preaching of repentance on the early believers. They saw it as integral, important in, in the gospel, that, it's, that it leads to life. And we saw that repentance has three elements. First of all, there's the recognition of personal sin. Repentance begins with this recognition. Uh, I have sin in my life. But then secondly deep feeling of wrongdoing and of sin against God. It's not just a passing thought, but it is, it is a deep, deep thinking, a deep sorrow, a deep conviction that we have violated the very holiness of God and God hates sin. And then there's the element of turning from sin. So we have this mental knowledge. We have this this deep down feeling and understanding of sin. But then it doesn't end there. We turn from sin and turn to a life of trusting in Jesus Christ. Realizing that God in providing the gospel provided a savior, the son of God, without sin, came and lived and, and never sin in his thoughts, never sin in his desires, never sin in his actions, absolutely sinless. And yet he went to the cross to pay the penalty for the sin of everyone who would believe in him. And so the gospel has this important part to it of repentance, which includes turning from sin and turning to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that involves 
as we are going to see what's called fruit of repentance, which is a change uh, in behavior that will result in genuine repentance. We have a wonderful example of it in the Gospels with a man named Zacchaeus. You remember Zacchaeus was a Jewish man who was uh, the term used in the King James Version and some other translations is a publican. Not republican, but publican, which was a tax collector for Rome. And the Jewish people saw these people as traitors because they were working for Rome. And then they, Rome gave them the leeway where there was a certain amount that they had to turn back to Rome, but they could charge as much as they could get away with and keep the rest for them. So they were considered the, some of the, the worst of sinners. And you remember when Jesus came to Jericho, And Zacchaeus was there, and he called out Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus repented, and the evidence of repentance was, he said, all of this money that I have taken wrongly from the Jewish people, I'm going to give it back and even give four times more. That was an evidence of repentance. And Matthew who wrote this gospel, same background. He was a tax collector, same thing. He came in repentance to the Lord. Well, this morning, we will look at verses 7 through 12, and I would ask if you are able, in honor of God's word, to stand as I read Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 to 12. But when he, that is John, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire." This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, you'll notice on on the outline, and there is an outline in the bulletin, and on the back it has discussion questions to use later in discussing. But uh, first of all, we see the lack of true repentance unmasked. Look at verse 7. But when he, that is John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So we know there was a big crowd coming. That's mentioned elsewhere. Big crowds of people were coming. And in this case, uh, people were coming from Jerusalem, from Judea, all the region about. That's going to be mentioned in verse 5. There were members 
of two prominent groups uh, in Israel at that time, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And you read a lot about them in the New Testament. Both the Pharisees and the Sadducees wanted to be known as authorities in the law of Moses and authorities in spiritual things. But they didn't want to change their hearts. They didn't want to admit that they were sinners. They didn't see themselves as sinners. And they didn't want to admit that they were spiritually bankrupt. And we'll talk in a moment about them. Why did they come if it wasn't for baptism? But let's first talk about the Pharisees. They were the dominant religious influence in Israel at that time. Uh, They first appear. They're not found in the Older Testament. They first appear in Israel's history in the 400 years between the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. And uh, they were very, I cannot emphasize the word very enough, very serious about keeping the Old Testament law and the religious traditions. They believed in what they called the oral law. Now you have the law of Moses, the law of God, but they also believed in what they called the oral law and said that was equal in authority uh, to the written law that God gave to Moses. Now what was the oral law? Well, the oral law was their collection of traditions and rules and regulations centered around the 613 commandments that were in the Old Testament law. We think of the Ten Commandments, but uh, the Jewish people very methodically went through and numbered 613 commandments in the law of Moses. And uh, they began to develop all kinds of traditions. They, in a way, they started out meaning well. They said, you know, it's very serious to God about violating his law, so we don't want to violate his law. So they came up with all kinds of traditions and, and other things, kind of seeing it as a fence put around the law. And uh, you would go up to the fence and no further. If you didn't go any further, then you wouldn't break the law. So these, these uh, traditions and, and so on that they made were like a fence. For instance, one of the laws we know was for the Jewish people to keep the Sabbath holy. And there were a few restrictions mentioned about keeping the Sabbath holy. But they began to think, well, boy, we don't want to break that law. What about, you know, because it mentions about not uh, carrying a burden or something. What about if you're wearing dentures? Is that a burden? So they wrote down all kinds of rules about that. And, And they just went on and on and on to where they had hundreds and thousands of these added restrictions and laws. And that was called the oral law. Jesus never once broke God's law. But in the Gospels, you do see that he broke the man-made laws. And uh, the Pharisees and Sadducees got very upset about that. So 
in the time of, of John the baptizer coming on the scene, that oral law was considered by the Pharisees and, scri- and, and Sadducees equal to Scripture. Is it around today? Yes. Every observant Jew knows all about the oral law. It's in their writings that they call the Talmud. You may hear occasionally of the Jewish Talmud. It's volumes long containing all these rules and regulations. In the New Testament, it's not called the Talmud, but in the New Testament, it's called the tradition of the elders. And it's called the tradition of the fathers. Now, on top of that, the Pharisees separated themselves from the Gentiles, from the heathen, and, other, and also separated themselves from other Jews who were not as zealous with the law as they were. And they did everything they could do to give the appearance of being religious and of, of being the epitome of what God desired for his people. The second group are the Sadducees. The Sadducees, in many ways, were the opposite of the Pharisees. They were quick to compromise. The Pharisees, no, they would not compromise to any degree when they saw that something was connected with the law of God. Uh, But the Sadducees went beyond that. They denied the supernatural. They denied, for instance, that there were angels. They denied that there is a resurrection. All kinds of things like that. that so here the, the Pharisees were so intent on, this is God's authoritative word and we're going to follow it. And yet uh, the Sadducees were so loose. They tended to also be rich. They controlled the temple. They controlled the money changers and the selling of of animals for sacrifice, charged exorbitant prices, got very rich, and uh, were were very, very wealthy as a rule. They were in big conflict with the Pharisees. It's kind of like the Republicans and the Democrats in Congress. The Sadducees and the Pharisees just could not agree and get along. And uh, the only common ground that the Pharisees and the Sadducees found was in opposition to Jesus. And then later to the early Christians. And, and, but also they, they held in common with the Pharisees that uh, they were trusting in works to save them and earn favor with God. But in in verse 7 it says, He saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism. That is, as we saw in the last study, as John was baptizing people who were coming in repentance of their sin. And as a symbol of that, uh, he would baptize. Now, they were coming together. The fact that they came together and you could never get them together on anything. What does that tell us? I think it is a hint. Can't prove it, but I think it's a hint that they were sent by the Jewish Sanhedrin. That was the Jewish Supreme Court, which was composed of Sadducees and Pharisees. And they have, I think, been sent 
by the, by the Sanhedrin to investigate John. So sometimes you hear it said they came to be baptized. It doesn't say that. It just says they came. And the fact that they came together, I think, is a good clue that uh, they were sent as a committee, as it were, to investigate John the Baptist. Uh, The Sanhedrin would want to investigate John the Baptist because his clothing we saw last time was typical of a prophet. Uh, He seemed to be acting like a prophet, and they wanted to check out, is he really a legitimate prophet? And uh, so they send uh, this group. Remember, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are not seeking true righteousness. They are coming still in their, in their self-righteousness. But John exposes them. They're coming to him, and he said to them, You brood of vipers. Brood means offspring, so they are baby snakes. But it's interesting that he didn't say, you snakes. He could have easily said that. But he says, you brood, or you offspring of snakes. In other words, he's making a connection that they are following in the sinful footsteps of their Jewish brethren, who through the years have been judged by God. They are the next generation of the Jewish brethren that you saw over and over in the Old Testament. That God had to bring judgment upon them. And it also reminds us of their ultimate spiritual father, who is Satan. The big serpent, the the great serpent who appeared to Eve in the Garden of Eden and Satan himself. And scripture says that the non-believer, they are a child of Satan. So it's interesting terminology, not just that they're snakes, but that they're brood of, of snakes. Now the word used, vipers there is a, a small poisonous desert snake. Many times people in the desert would be gathering brush and these small snakes would be in the brush and can't really distinguish them, and they would wind up being bitten by them, and they were very, uh, very deadly. Uh, And they were, um, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are as deadly spiritually in their teaching as these snakes are with their physical poison. The Pharisees and Sadducees appear harmless, but they are deadly in their teaching. And so John is exposing them, and he says, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Uh, in, in those days, out in the desert, in the wilderness, sometimes there would be brush fires, and uh, the farmer would burn the field uh, after the harvest, and you would see snakes running away from the fire. They had probably all seen that. And so John is saying, You're under the wrath of God. And look at you. Who warned you to flee uh, from, uh, from that wrath? From the wrath to come. The wrath to come is God's judgment on sin. Secondly, John talks about the evidence of true repentance. That is in verse 8. He says, bear fruit in keeping 
with repentance. Now, someone has said, I don't know where I first heard this, but someone has said that repentance and salvation are like calories. You can't see them, but you can sure see their results. And it's the same way with repentance. It's in the heart. You don't see the actual repentance, but you see the results will show up in a person's life. And John, in talking about the fruits of repentance, he's not asking them to pile up good works to earn God's favor, because that never does. Our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, the Bible says. Many people see, you know, coming before God's judgment is like being on the scales, and you'll have all your good things here, and and then you have your sins over here, and if your good things outweigh the the bad you've got it made. Um, That's not what's going on here. John is not saying you've got to add more to this side of the scale. But... um, Uh, That's not what these uh, deeds of repentance are. But to John, repentance and faith in Jesus Christ bring a new life. And this new life will be obvious by a person's behavior, attitudes, and words, etc., it's kind of like a business. Once in a while you'll have the experience, maybe there's a business that you've gone to, and, and over a period of time you've seen it go downhill, the service kind of deteriorates or something, and, and one day you see a sign on the window, new management, and you go in, and hopefully you see a change. Hey, th- th- this is change. This is new management. They're doing things in a new way, different way. And to John, that's the fruits of repentance, that our life shows we are under new management. Jesus Christ is Lord. He's the owner. He's the boss. And we come to salvation, and we have come to Jesus as our Savior and our Lord. We are under new management, and it's that new management that John is saying is the uh, fruit of repentance, the evidence of repentance. And then third, we have their excuse for the lack of true repentance. John knows it before they even say it in verse 9. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Uh, They're saying they came with the hard attitude of don't talk to us about experiencing the wrath of God. That's for Gentiles, pagans. We are the descendants of Abraham. They taught that all the descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, were protected from divine wrath and judgment because of the merits of their fathers. It's kind of like the preaching that Martin Luther came on the scene preaching against. When when the people were going around teaching about and preaching about, there's this treasury of merit from the saints where they did all these good deeds and more than they needed to get into heaven. And so that treasury is available to you. Now, that's not scripture and that's message of the Reformation. 
But the scribes and Pharisees had a system something like that with the merits uh, from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so uh, John tells them, Don't say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able of these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Now, in the land of Israel, all around, there are rocks galore. Um, They didn't have to look far, especially out in the wilderness, to see stones. There were plenty of them. And, uh, And so he is is uh, saying, you know, if God can take out of the dust and make Adam, uh, he could do this even with the stones. He could raise some children of Abraham. So that's not the deal, to claim to be a child of Abraham. But this becomes a great picture of our salvation, that uh, we are dead spiritually, the Bible says, And yet God takes these dead stones, as it were, of our life before Christ and gives us life and makes us new creatures in Christ. Now, then we come to number four. And I'm having a little problem here because of the way this is. My feet have gone to sleep because of the way I'm sitting. So if I try to kind of... Uh, remedy that. Uh, That's why I might be doing some moving here. But anyway, so we have then in verses 10 to 12, the consequences of the lack of true repentance. Look at verse 10. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Even now, his, his point is, repentance is urgent. Um, don't wait Now is the day of salvation. He's picturing a woodsman who has been chopping away at a tree with the swinging of an axe. And normally when the woodsman chops down a tree, he leaves the trunk and sprouts can come out of it from which another tree can grow. But when the root is cut, the tree is gone forever. I'm going to... Yeah, I can't do that. Oh, well. Um, you want to sit on the other chair and sit next to the pulpit? Well, that won't work with the camera. I'll, I'll, keep, working. I'll, keep, I'll keep working with this. Okay. Uh, but notice when he talks about it that it's every tree, no exception. No sinner should think that he can get away with sin. Then in verse 11... I baptize you. Remember, of course, John was doing that out at the Jordan River. He was baptizing with water. He says, I baptize with water for repentance. Don't get the idea that that's saying that the water baptism then equals repentance. The idea is I'm baptizing with water because of repentance, that it gives the picture of repentance. But so he says, I baptize you with water for repentance or because of repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. That's the idea of greater in power. That's speaking of Jesus, of course. Uh, 
And Jesus would be more powerful in John. Uh, He will be more powerful in bringing the kingdom. He will be more powerful in his ministry, in his miracles, and in the power of salvation. And then John wants to make sure they know uh, his insignificance, as it were, when he says, uh, the one coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals, and they all wore, wore sandals in those days, I am not worthy to carry. In those days, slaves would take care of the taking on and putting on the sandals of the owner of the estate. And uh, the, the owner and uh, his family, they didn't do that. They had slaves to handle the, the, the sandals. Do you think the president of the United States shines his own shoes? I don't think so. There's someone in the White House who does that for him. And John is saying, that's my position. I'm a servant, and I'm, I'm a slave, as it were. You need to focus on the greater one. You've come to investigate me, but you need to focus on the one who's coming after me. He says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, John says, this is something very serious. You, you're, you're excited about my baptism with water. But wait till the Messiah comes and he baptizes with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Uh, the, when, the idea of baptizing with the Holy Spirit, I'm sure the crowds, not the Pharisees and the scribes, But the crowds must have got very excited when he talked about that because they hoped for a day that was promised in the Old Testament, in the book of Joel, that they hoped for that day when God would pour out his spirit on all mankind. Now that happened and was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, but that hasn't come yet. And they, Jewish people knew that verse, and they were looking forward to that. And then on top of that, when he talks about this, probably came to their mind Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 and 26. When, when the prophets prophesies when the Messiah comes and he would sprinkle clean water on them and give them a new heart and put a new spirit within them. That also is a prophecy of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. So John's message here is look what Christ is going to do. He's going to come and baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Every believer since the day of Pentecost has been baptized uh, you can use several propositions there. There are, there are some, some Greek prepositions that get translated by, look, listen to these words, in, with, and by the Holy Spirit. We are baptized in, with, and by the Holy Spirit. 
at the time of our salvation, baptized into the body of Christ. You can read about that, for instance, in Romans chapter 6. But then John puts that word and. And the and there has now covered around 2,000 years. He says, the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, some Christians have seen this fire as a very desirable thing. I have to tell you an experience I had a couple of months after I went uh, and began to pastor Irvine Community Church in California. I was 21. I was a senior in college. I was unmarried. I had not even met Terry yet. And um, I moved into the church parsonage behind, uh, behind the church and um, living in this new community, commuting to, to college, but uh, about 10 miles away from where I lived was the home of one of my dad's cousins and her husband. I had never met them. I had met this cousin's mother and this cousin's sister because they live near us in San Diego. But I never met them. And so after I got settled and living there and so on, I looked them up and went to visit them. Now, I knew they were believers. I also knew that they were of a different persuasion. They were in a very charismatic church and very, very much involved with that. But anyway, um, I I came, of course, called before, and they were thrilled to have me come and thrilled to hear of what God's doing in my life. And especially, I don't know what it was by the fact that I was unmarried that got them very concerned Here I am, 21, starting the pastor, and I'm not married. I need a wife. And my dad's cousin, her name was Velma. She called her husband, Clarence, come, lay hands on Dennis. He He needs to be baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire, and God bring him a wife. I trembled. When she said fire, because this fire is not something I think we should want. This fire is the fire of judgment. But I tell that story because there are a large number of people who see this fire as as something very desirable and that a Christian should want. And uh, there are other Christians who don't see it quite that way, but they see it as speaking of the purification, in other words, our sanctification that goes on. And that's certainly true. But the context here, I think it's perfectly clear. The context is of judgment. A person will either be baptized by Christ with the Holy Spirit, or at the end of the age, they will be baptized with fire. Which will it be for you? These are strong words that Jesus is giving to the scribes and the Pharisees. Then in verse 12, 
he says, his winnowing fork tossed what uh, a winnowing fork was used when they had when they harvest grain they would go through and cut down the grain and then they would gather it all together but the grain has the worthless parts called chaff and then it has the good parts the kernels well you can't just sit there and okay here's the chaff and so on by hand, it'll take forever. So they had a, a, a big winnowing fork. And they would throw it up in the air at the, in the evening when the breezes came. And the breeze would blow away the chaff, but the kernels, which are heavier, would fall down, and then, then they have them. This is a picture of the judgment of God. And so he speaks of God, and he says his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor. It's all going to be removed. And gather his wheat into the barn. The barn would represent heaven, represent salvation, represents being in Christ. But the chaff he will burn with uh, unquenchable fire. In other words, so often in Scripture, the picture of judgment, of fire, of hell is unquenchable. That it goes forever and ever and ever. It is a terrible, terrible picture. So the question is, which group do you belong to? John was pointing out to the Pharisees and the scribes, you have to examine yourself. And I think you'll find you don't have repentance. And you see that you don't have evidence of repentance. And so you are going to be facing the eternal judgment of God. But let's get back to the important thing about repentance. There are four indications of genuine repentance, remember. There is, have you recognized with your mind that you have sinned? Has that recognition of your sin resulted in a feeling of wrongdoing and of sin against God? Have you turned from sin and turned to a life of obedience to Jesus Christ? We saw those three earlier. But now we see there's another one. Is the fruit of repentance seen in your life? Let's turn to the Gospel of Luke to another time when John or when John talked about of this fruit of repentance to see what some examples of what it is. It's Luke chapter three and verses eight through fourteen. Luke three verses 8 to 14. God's word teaches that true repentance will result in being transformed from being characterized by sin to being characterized by love. That's the mark of a Christian. Jesus said they will know you by if you have love for one another. John gives three examples of what this fruit of repentance might look like. And, in regard, and, and they all show a change involving love. The three happen to deal with money and our possessions. 
But as I think we'll see also, there's a whole lot of other areas that it should show up in too. So John gives three examples because of three different uh, questions that were posed to him. The first one is in verses 10 and 11. And his point is going to be the fruit of repentance they need is to be generous to those in need. Look at verse 10. And the crowds asked him, and you'll see the verses in front are just like the verses we read in Matthew. And so then the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Now, what's the deal with these tunics? We're used to our pants and shirts and skirts and blouses and all kinds of things like that. The tunics, it was a basic piece of clothing worn by both sexes in those days. And by rich or poor, they would all have tunics. Uh, The tunics went from the shoulder uh, down at least to the knees and many times to the ankles. And uh, it was a very important piece of clothing for them. Now his point is, um, when they asked uh, uh, what, what should we do, he gives this as an example. A lot of people, poor people, don't have two tunics. Uh, the wealthier people, the people with more means, would have a basic tunic, but over it, it would be a more ornamental tunic and also keeping them warmer and so on. So Jesus says, you know, a change, a fruit of repentance in a person's life will show up in love. That they would see this person with a need and they can meet that need and they will be generous to those in need. The second example is in verses 12 and 13. And that is, don't act out of greed. Look at verse 12. Tax collectors, remember we talked about tax collectors, they were considered the scum of society, the worst of sinners. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. I have to believe that unlike the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they saw themselves as sinners and they came in repentance. But they came to be baptized and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. It's interesting that John did not tell them to get a new line of work. I think there's a lot of Jewish people who would have done that. Oh, get out of that business. Find a new job. He doesn't say that. He says, we want to see fruit in your life. And don't be charging them exorbitant prices anymore. Do what is right. Do what is fair. You're acting out of greed. And everyone knew that the tax collectors lived in mansions and lived and wore fancy clothes and all these things. And it was greed, greed, greed. And he says, a fruit of repentance will show up with love of don't act out of greed. 
And then the third example is in verse 14, and it is be honest and content. Look at verse 14. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, uh, do not extort money from anyone. Now, the soldiers were Romans for the most part. Occasionally there would be a Jewish person, but usually Romans, and they got their pay from Rome. But the pay of a soldier pretty much just covered basics and necessities. If they wanted any luxuries, they'd have to find another way to get it. And soldiers found a way of when they found someone breaking some law, they would, um, well, you've seen, you see it in movies and television and maybe you've seen it in real life where maybe uh, the police, uh, unethical police, will say, give, give the impl- impl- imply, well, if you could just kind of give me some money, we'll overlook that, that kind of thing. Or in our society, you, you often hear of, of people in a place of authority like that um, asking for sexual favors, and then they will let them go. That's the same kind of thing with with these soldiers. And so he says to the soldiers, do not extort money from anyone by threats, by false accusation, and be content with your wages. What a radical change. So here are these soldiers and they are coming saying, oh, we've heard the message, we've repented of our sin. And John says, Well, let's see the fruit of repentance. It's the evidence of a changed life. It's not works that are making you saved. It's works that show your salvation. But handling our possessions and money are only one area of life in which there should be fruit. Last Sunday morning, right here, Pastor Steve preached from 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 13. The verse he closed with, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 13. It's in the context of the whole issue of eating the meat that has been offered to idols. And he went into that and he'll be going into that more uh, next, next time. But in verse 13... Paul says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother to stumble. And Steve gave the example of a parent who has worked hard all day and in the evening feels he or she is owed a little downtime, a little relaxation. But then the kids come and they have needs. And because of love, he will give of himself, give up that downtime for them. And gave us an example of how we are to have that kind of love. Yielding those things that we would tend to say, well, I sure would want this. 
You know, when Steve was preaching that, I thought of an example from when I was a kid. Uh, My dad, for some years, was a pastor. And I remember him preaching on this passage. And my dad loved coffee. The coffee pot was always on from morning till night. And uh, I knew how much he loved coffee. And I'll never get him saying, I will give up coffee if my drinking coffee causes a brother or sister to stumble. Because you remember that's involved in the passage, causing them to stumble. That made an impression on me. And that's the same thing that Steve was teaching with other illustrations, and that is here. An evidence of repentance is there's got new ownership in our heart, in our life, and it will show up in love. Do you have fruits of repentance? We mentioned in the last study that I did several weeks ago when I did part two on that Wednesday night, that there's also the teaching in Scripture that repentance isn't just at the moment of our salvation or leading up to salvation, but it is to continue the rest of our Christian life. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, uh, he is faithful and just to forgive us. It's telling us in the present tense, we are to always be confessing our sin. We are always to be living in repentance. So do you have the fruits of repentance to begin with? And then if you're a believer, are you continuing with the fruit of repentance? But we also have to remember the repentance is part of the gospel. And the gospel is the good news of Christ. We cannot lose sight of that. We cannot so focus on repentance that we're just thinking of what what we're to do and so on, but to realize that it is faith and trust in Jesus Christ who paid the penalty for the sin of everyone who would come and trust in Christ. And so this morning, if you are not a Christian, the gospel calls you to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. If you have never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, come this morning in repentance and in faith in him. And then as a Christian, that the rest of our days, we would have this attitude of repentance with the fruit of repentance. Let's pray. Father, I I thank you for all that you have done in providing salvation through your Son. Father, I thank you that it's not of works that we have done. And Father, I pray that uh, each one of us would ask of ourselves, do we have the fruit of repentance? And Father, those that would have to say, I don't. I've never had it, that they would come in recognition of their sin and repent of sin before you and trust Christ as Savior. And we pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.